thank you for joining us at Luminous Church. And this morning, we hope that you see Jesus clearly. Have you ever had a moment in your life where it seems like the, at this giant moment, this just epic moment in your life, and you're not really sure how it's going to happen, you're not sure what's going on, you kind of panic a little bit. And then a little bit of time passes by and you realize, maybe I was a little overdramatic. If you know any of the Snelsons, we tend to be a little overdramatic. All three of us, my sister, my brother, myself, we tend to blow things out of proportion. I had many of these moments throughout my life, but in particular, one of them, um, when I was in college, I was at A&M, and everybody at A&M has these same kind of haircuts. They, they're all short, and they're all clean-shaven, and they're all very respectable and great politeness. And one of my friends from A&M is here, and he fits this description perfectly. <laughs> well, I like to stand out. I like to be different. So I get, normally in Midland, that's how I look too, but then I go to A&M, I'm like, oh, I want to be different. Not to mention the fact that I have a brother at the time. Oh, there he is. My brother had grown out his hair. And I come back from Midland, I come back from College Station, and it's like, oh man, I love that hair. I gotta get me some of that hair. And he just had these beautiful locks. Oh, well, see, I decided I'm gonna grow my hair out too, because you know, at the time all these girls were talking about how great Tyler's hair was. So I was like, okay, I'll do this too. I didn't have the hair that Tyler has. <laughs> I had this curly Richard Simmons-esque fro. <laughs> but despite my dream being crushed that I didn't have Tyler's Fabio gold, you know, hair, his Hercules-esque hair, I decided, okay, I like my hair anyway. And so I just rock my hair. I just go with it. And so I'm at A&M. I'm walking around. I got this huge fro. I stand out. But as it's growing out, I start to notice this problem. The hair on the side of my head seems longer than the hair on the top of my head. I'm very confused by this anomaly. So I go to the hairstylist and I ask, hey, can you even out my hair? Because on the sides, it's longer. And I just remember, still to this day, what she said to me. She says, no, honey, your hair's not longer on the sides. You're just losing your hair. Oh, my goodness. My life was coming down. It's falling down at this moment because up to that point, you knew me before. I was adamant. I'm not going to lose my hair. Not going to happen. Maybe I was in denial because my father was bald. My, both of my grandfathers were bald. All seven of my uncles were bald. <laughs> I didn't have a hope. No hope at all. And so I had a crisis. I had this crisis moment. I thought my life was coming down. Who am I without my hair? Who am I? Well, then some time passed, and I realized, I guess that's not that big of a deal. I mean, what's a 30-year-old with a wife and kids going to do with hair like that? <laughs> Man, but, you know, it just happens. Those, those kind of crises come, crises come. But I just, it got me thinking about that moment. It got me thinking about different crises in my life that I've experienced. 
because as I was thinking about that video, as I was thinking about the Make History video, every one of those moments resonates with us. They have, they have this weight to them. There's this gravity to these moments, you know, whether it's Michael Jordan taking that last shot in the playoffs or just, you know, uh, Martin Luther King's amazing speech and seeing Frank, you know, seeing, uh, oh, I was named, it escaped me, but just different people doing these amazing moments in time. And I just realized that the moments that impacted me the most in that video were the moments that seemed to arise in crisis. And to me, the, the best picture of crisis in that video is the scene in Tiananmen Square. In Tiananmen Square, if you don't know, it happened in the 80s, and it was in the People's Republic of China, and a group of students in Beijing came together, and they decided to have this public protest because they were tired. They were tired of the injustice that they were feeling, tired of the things that they were coming against, the economic inequality, just all these different things. And so they, they staged this public protest. And the Chinese government responds by releasing the military to forcibly dis, disband this public protest. And this moment was captured on television while this is going on. While the world is watching, we see this moment. And this man, he's called... When you look it up, when you look up this event, he's called the Tank Man because nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows his name. Nobody knows what happened to him. Nobody knows where he is. But for a moment, he captures the world's attention. And it's, I don't, you know, I just stopped and I looked at this and I'm like, okay, this moment has this, this power to it. There's this, there's this feeling that you get when you watch it. And I don't really know what it is. I don't know if it's the fact that He's standing in front of the tank, or if the tanks stop, or if it's both, or if it's just there's something else to it. And it's just amazing that, I mean, this doesn't even portray all of what happens. I mean, we see four tanks in this picture, but what really, there's 17 tanks. And I think it's just powerful to see this man who, without regard to the consequences, knowing that he's powerless to stop these tanks. If these tanks want, they can just go right through him. But he stands anyway because of what matters to him is so, what, what he's standing up for, he, he doesn't care what the consequences are. And so this is a crisis. This is a crisis moment for this guy's life because there's, you, just, you can just see it. There's a crisis there. And we all face crisis. Every one of us feels crisis. Every one of us experiences crisis. And it takes different shapes. It takes different forms. The circumstances change. The consequences change. But we know crisis when we experience it. And that got me thinking, what's, what is a crisis? What's different about a crisis versus other things? Because that video, that video has amazing moments throughout all of it. And every one of those scenes, there's weight to it. There's consequences to it. It's these powerful moments, but not every single one of them is a crisis. The shot of Michael Jordan taking the final shot in the playoffs, that's not a crisis. Usain Bolt winning the Olympics is not a crisis. But Tiananmen Square, that's a crisis. And we all know crisis when we experience it. And so I asked the Lord, what, what is a crisis? Like, what makes it different than these other moments? And the Lord told me, I feel like, and while I was preparing for this message, he told me that crisis isn't just heavy costs. It isn't just, you know, big circumstances. It's not these, 
just these moments, but it's what makes a crisis a crisis is something when there's this event that we're coming up against, something's occurring that's going to affect our lives greatly, but we have no control over the outcome. To me, that's what a crisis represents. It's just outside of our control. That's the common theme in crisis. We all experience crisis. Maybe we have, we're having a crisis right now that's <clears throat> financial. Maybe you, you're, having a, you're facing a financial crisis where you don't know how you've got let off from your job and you don't know how you're going to pay for your kids' lunches at school. Maybe you have a health crisis and you don't know what's going to happen. And it's outside of your control, and you do, your loved one gets sick, and you take them to the hospital, and you take them to the doctors, and, but you can't make them get better. Maybe you have a marriage, and it's in crisis as well. And we all have crisis. And I think it's important, and I think it's timely that this message is coming up at this point, because that's also the common theme with Make History when it comes to God. Because the, the men and women we've been covering for the past two or three weeks, Gideon, Moses, Esther, all three of them faced crisis when the Lord asked them to do his will. Gideon is hiding in a wine press, and he's afraid because the Midianites have taken over his country, and they're threatening to kill everyone. And God says, you're a mighty man. I want you to lead my army and free the Israelite land from the Midianites. Moses, who had ran away from Egypt, is charged by God to go back to Egypt and face Pharaoh, face the greatest nation on the face of the earth at the time, and demand that these lowly slaves be set free. And then Esther faces the extermination of her people, and at the cost of her own life, has to go and try to save her people. Those are all crises. And Daniel, who we'll be talking about today, I think is the perfect like, segue, the middle part of this series, because his entire life seems to be one crisis after the next. And there's nothing necessarily particularly amazing about Daniel. He doesn't seem to be, he's not the biggest, he's not the strongest. He's just a man who was used by God and faced crisis and made history. From the very first chapter Daniel is facing crisis. He was a member, he was either, a, he was a young man either of nobility or even a member of the royal family because what Nebuchadnezzar did, uh, the king of Babylon, he came and he, he captured the city of Jerusalem. He conquered the city of Jerusalem. And then he, did, he told his, his uh, you know, advisors, he said, I want you to go out in the city, I want you to go across the land, I want you to find young men of noble birth or the, royal, or the royal family, and I want you to take them back to Babylon and teach them my ways, teach them my language, and have them serve in my house. And so that's Daniel. Daniel is one of those men, one of those young men that was taken from his home, taken from his family, dragged to this other country to serve a king he doesn't know, who doesn't serve and love his God, who serves and loves the pagan gods at the time, and he's enslaved. He's facing a crisis right then. He has no control over his situation. He can't make this, the slavers let him go. He, can't, he has no control over his life. What would be the normal response for somebody in that situation? 
I don't know if it was you, me being dramatic like I am, I'd probably be freaking out, I'd be yelling, I'd be, be growing afraid, I'd be, I might even get angry. Normal human response in those situations is to, to be afraid, to try to run away, to try to stand up and fight for ourselves. Maybe even doubt God and ask, why is this happening to me? That's the normal response. That's what we're all used to in crisis. But there's these few men and women that we see in Scripture, when they face crisis, that's not their response. They seem to be immune to the, to the circumstances that they're facing. They seem to be immune to fear. They seem to be immune to, this, to anger. They don't doubt God. They don't even seem to care. They're not worried about their own lives. And that got me thinking, why? Why do we normally respond with anger and sadness and, and fear and all these things? And so I asked, that to, I asked the Lord that too when I was preparing for this message. And he, he told me it's that we need him. That's what he made us for. From the very beginning of time, he made man to be in relationship with him. That's the whole purpose that he made us for, is to have relationship with him. And so he designed us perfectly to be in that relationship, to be in that um, circumstances with him, so that he would be our provider. He would be our, our stability. He would be our security. He would provide for our needs. That he wants us to be in a dependent relationship with him. But our God also wants that relationship to be a choice. And so he gives us the choice to reject that and to not to be dependent on him. And when we're not dependent on him, we're independent of him. And we're, we're left for, to care for ourselves. To, to, it's up to us to protect ourselves. And we feel vulnerable. We feel exposed. And that's why these feelings rise up in us is because there's no one bigger to take care of us, to watch out for us. So when these crises hit, that are bigger than us and we can't control the outcome, we, these feelings rise up in us because we're, we realize we are powerless to stop the crisis. Perhaps the most well-known crisis in Daniel's life is the one that most of us have heard of, have heard the story since we were little children, and that's Daniel in the lion's den. You turn with me to Daniel 6, Verse 3, you can see that's also in the Luminous Church app. You'll find the verse there as well. Let's read about this crisis. Now Daniel <clears throat> so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So the king 
Darius put the decree in writing. That's a crisis. He certainly fits the description that God gave me, that crisis is something that's outside of our control. Even though Daniel was well-respected in Persia, even though Daniel, it seems that even from what Scripture shows us that Darius the king even loved Daniel, liked Daniel, wanted Daniel around. Daniel literally cannot do anything to alter what's going to happen. Because it says right there in the text, it says that the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be repealed. So once that law was in place, it was, it was there. It couldn't be changed. If Daniel prayed to anyone but Darius, he was going to be thrown in the lion's den. But Daniel's not going to pray to Darius. He's not going to pray to Darius. I nearly said Nebuchadnezzar. Because he loves God. And so the normal response that we talked about earlier, Daniel would have gotten angry at the situation, would have maybe tried to run away, been fearful, maybe even try to negotiate with God and say, well, I won't pray to Darius, but I won't pray to you either for 30 days. I'll just... I'll just won't pray for 30 days. He could have even just gone into his house and closed the windows and not prayed at all. I mean, or, or prayed even in secret and no one would know. But that's not why Daniel responded. In verse 10 it says, Now when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So Daniel, he doesn't respond how we're used to responding. He doesn't have any panic, seemingly. He has no, no anger. He just continues on. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of come up with some negotiation with God and try to deal his way out of this. He just keeps going. And he does it without hiding, without being ashamed of what he does. He has the windows open and just prays. That's an amazing response. And it seems, it's so different than what we're used to. And it led me to ask the question, how? Why is he different? Why, why is him and other men and women of the Bible seem to respond differently than what our normal human response would be? Well, you know the rest of the story. Darius is informed that Daniel has disobeyed the law, that Daniel is praying to his God still. And Darius, Darius is very concerned at this point. He doesn't want Daniel thrown in the lion's den. He likes Daniel. He loves Daniel. And so it says that he spends all night trying to come up with a way to keep Daniel from being thrown in the lion's den. But like we said, the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be repealed. And so he's stuck. And so we see Darius is even facing his own crisis. He, as the king of Persia, can't even change his own laws. He can't even save one of his own subjects from the law that he enacted. And so he's forced to, to allow Daniel to be thrown in the lion's den. And so the next morning they toss him in. But Darius says, as they're throwing Daniel in, he says, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And then they roll the rock over the den and the rest of the day and night, Daniel stays in the lion's den. And it says that Darius couldn't sleep. He stays up all night worrying what's going to happen to Daniel. And the next morning at the daybreak, he comes and he demands that the rock would be rolled away. And he asks the question, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, 
been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel, of course, responds and says, yes, God sent an angel and he shut the lion's mouths. And in verse 6, 23, it says, oh, wait, yeah. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. That's the answer. Trust. It makes sense. We accept what we talked about earlier, which is that God made us to be in a dependent relationship with him. Trust is a part of that. If we don't have trust, if we take control of our own lives, we're operating in our own strength. We're operating in our own power, and we're left to fend for ourselves. But when we have that trust, that lack of peace is no longer present. Our peace comes from God. Because we know that God is bigger. God is bigger than any crisis we could ever face. Whereas by myself, I can't. I can't make my loved one get better in the face of illness. But God can. We need him. We serve an amazing, amazing God. And that's the amazing thing too, is he wants to be with us. It's not just this. It's not like he wants our trust because it fulfills something inside of him that he, that he needs. No, he just loves us. He wants us to trust him. And he's not going to make you trust him. He's just going to ask you. And that's the thing is we kind of have a kind of perverted idea of what trust is most of the time. We kind of we use expressions like earning my trust. And so we kind of had this economy we set up with God where, and other people especially, and we say, okay, well, as long as you're meeting my expectations, as long as you're making me feel good, as long as everything that I want is occurring and you never do anything that could ever harm me, I'll trust you. But as soon as something happens that doesn't meet our expectations, what do we do? We pull our trust back. We say, well, I can't trust you now. That's not what trust is. Trust, that's... That example is really just conditional loyalty. We're just saying, as long as you meet my needs, okay, then I'll say that I follow you. But trust is much more permanent. Trust is something where we say, Lord, you alone are good. And I recognize that you've made me to be in a relationship with you and that you are my provider and you are my security. That's why Daniel had such peace in the face, that's why he seemingly, it's like nothing changes for him. He's faced with his own destruction, with his own death at the, hand, at, the, at the mouths of lions, and yet he just continues on as if it was any other day. And he goes to God and he opens the windows and he says, Lord, help me. Be my shepherd. Be my strength. Be my security. It's hard for us to trust God. Deep down, we don't want anyone else in control. We want to be in control. That's, that's obvious. That's, what, that's the, what Adam did in the original, when he originally fell, is he wanted to be in control. 
We every day fight God and want to be in control of our own lives. We just, we don't give him our life. We want to take it back. We want to take it back. And maybe we trick ourselves into thinking, oh, well, I trust you, I'll give you my life. But as soon as he does anything that doesn't meet our expectations, we take it back. And that's what crisis is for us. It's something bigger than us. It's a reality check. It's a reality check that there's things that are outside of our control that we cannot change. And it touches our greatest insecurity, which is that we're not God. So then practically, how do I trust God? What do I, what's my next step? What do I do to trust God more? Daniel trusted God because he knew God. He spent time with God. He prayed to God. Daniel, if he was anything, like before we talked about that he's not necessarily this big, giant man. He wasn't this warrior. He's not like David who was a musician or a, a king and a warrior and a general and all these things. Daniel, all Daniel was was a man of prayer. That's why Daniel could trust God. It's because Daniel didn't run and hide in the face of crisis. Daniel went to God. He went and pursued his father, and he says, he spent time with him. He prayed to him. He recognized that he's powerless against the powers of this world, but he went to the man, he went to the God who's more powerful than anything else, and he spent time in prayer, and he exposed himself, and he was vulnerable to his, his Lord, and he said, Lord, I trust you. Do you want that peace? You no longer want to be crippled by fear and anxiety and crisis and be blown this way and that way when any kind of something comes against you that you can't control. And give in. Give to that relationship. Give to the Lord. Say, Lord, take, take it. Here it is. Take my life. I want you to be in control. And get to know him. Get to know the love that God has for you. Because when you trust God and you accept his love, then fear and worry and anxiety, and all those things lose all power over you. That's what the scripture says, is perfect love casts out all fear. And that's my encouragement to you, is just to pursue that relationship, because that's what God made you to be. That's what God made you for, is to be in relationship with him. The worship team would come up with me, I'll close this out. Jesus, of course, is always our ultimate example. Jesus faced crisis too. That's kind of hard for us to imagine. That's kind of hard for us to picture Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect, the one perfect man to ever live facing crisis. Because we kind of, we have kind of a skewed perspective of who Jesus was. We don't really think that he faces what we faced. But he did. He faced crisis. And Jesus, even more than Daniel, is the example that we should live by. So the greatest crisis that Jesus ever faced, the hours leading up to his crucifixion, hours leading up to his torture and his beating and all those things, where's, where's Jesus? He's not running away, hiding. He's not angry. He's not negotiating with God. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's pursuing his God, and he says, Lord, be with me. He says, and the words that we should live by are, not my will, but your will be done. That's our anthem. 
That's the anthem we should live our life by, the trust that we have. That's Jesus expressing his trust. He says, it doesn't matter what I want. I want what you want. If you can make that your anthem, if you can pray those words, and if you can believe those words in your heart, then the peace of God, the peace that surpasses all understanding, will come into your life and cannot be stripped from you. Because you're no longer placing your strength on your own life. You're no longer building your house on the rock of your own life. You're building your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. And Jesus cannot be shaken. No crisis can affect the power, the perfection, the love, and the stability of Jesus Christ. And so the worship team is gonna sing, We Will Not Be Shaken Again, because that's the perfect song to fit in with this with this, this sermon about trusting God and realizing that if we build our life, if we put our trust in Jesus and we built it on, we build our life upon him, we cannot be shaken.